According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, once again in Jeremiah 48, four chapters to go, four weeks to go. We're closing in quickly on the, uh, the end of this book. We've been teaching this uh, chapter by chapter, week by week, and the Lord has blessed that. Uh, then as the follow-up study to Isaiah, by the way, 66 Sundays and 66 chapters there as well. And so uh, looking forward to tying together these two monster prophets. They're called great prophets, but I think Isaiah and Jeremiah are the, the great of the great, the monster prophets, if you will. Um, and then uh, looking forward to wrapping these up. And when I come back from Ukraine, then looking forward to starting the book of Hebrews. And that will be our new Sunday morning study uh, starting in the month of May. But for now, we've got to deal with some Moabites, and it's a long chapter, so uh, we've got to cover it and uh, do so before the, uh, before the potluck. <laughs> we'll see how that, how that works. Yeah, good luck with that. All right, before we get started, let's go before the Father's throne of grace. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment for silent prayer so each of us can humble ourselves under the authority of His truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your grace, thankful for your mercy, thankful for the provision that you have made, the faithful provision you have given for us to study to show ourselves approved. Father, not one of us here deserves this, but in Christ, we all deserve this, Father. We are in your Son and uh, the heir of all things. And I thank you that we have received his righteousness, we have received his merit, we have received his riches, we have received all things. I rejoice, Father, in the grace provision for studying the Word of God, that, Father, you dwell within us. Your Holy Spirit dwells within every born-again believer of our dispensation. And with a spirit of truth within us, Father, uh, the eyes of our understanding have been opened, and I pray for that. And I pray that with ears to hear and a heart to understand, Father, that we would be humble before your truth on this day. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, dealing with some Moabites uh, here in this chapter concerning Moab. We're in the uh, the uh, home stretch for the book, and so in these final chapters we have a series of messages to the Gentiles. And we already started this last week and the week before introducing this. We uh, were all about the Philistines uh, last week, and it was Egypt before that. So here we have it now, Moab. Concerning Moab, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Woe to Nebo, for it has been destroyed. Kiriathiam has been put to shame, it has been captured. The lofty stronghold has been put to shame and shattered. There is praise for Moab no longer. In Heshbon they have devised calamity against her. Come and let us cut her off from being a nation. You too, madmen, will be silenced. Those aren't people, by the way, that's a town. Okay, uh, We'll be silenced. The sword will follow after you. The sound of an outcry from Horonayim, devastation and great destruction. Moab is broken. Her little ones have sounded out a cry of distress. For by the ascent of Luhith, they will ascend with continual weeping. For at the descent of Horonayim, they have heard the anguished cry of destruction. Flee, save your lives, that you may be like a juniper in the wilderness. All right, I'll stop there. There is a larger context uh, well, let me go down through verse 10. Verse 7, For because of your trust in your own achievements and treasures, 
even you yourself will be captured. And Hamash, that's their god, the god of the Moabites, is uh, Hamash. He will go off into exile together with his priests and his princes. A destroyer will come to every city so that no city will escape. The valley also will be ruined and the plateau will be destroyed as the Lord has said. Give wings to Moab for she will flee away and her cities will become a desolation without inhabitants in them. Cursed be the one who does the Lord's work negligently. Yeah, write that one down, okay? Put that one on your refrigerator. And cursed be the one who restrains his sword from blood. All right, so there's our first 10 verses of, uh, of a very long chapter. I think 47 verses all total. A couple of things here. If this wakes up, hello. All right. A couple of things here to introduce chapter 48. The context here comes in consideration of uh, material we've already covered back in chapter 27. That's the primary context, the, the prophet himself. Jeremiah has previously spoken a message against uh, Moab. So we can take a look at that real quick, Jeremiah 27. Then we want to go in consideration of additional prophetic messages and uh, the details of which we will not plunge into this morning because of our format and the nature of this study. I'll give it to you if you want to pursue it on a homework basis. Uh, feel free. But in Jeremiah 27, uh, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Thus says the Lord to me, make for yourself bonds and yokes and put them on your neck. Remember this? And he manufactured his own yoke and he was walking around wearing his own bonds as the, as the illustration. They didn't have PowerPoint back then, so they did stuff like this. And send word to the king of Edom, to the king of Moab, to the king of the sons of Ammon, to the king of Tyre, and to the king of Sidon by the messengers who come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah. And we discussed this way back, you might recall, in chapter 27. Each of these neighboring kings had sent emissaries to Zedekiah. And they were possibly, you know, having a little group convention, a little conspiracy. You know, what can we do about Nebuchadnezzar? Can we rebel? Can we defend ourselves and resist the power of the, of the Babylonians? And you might recall in chapter 27, uh, the, uh, Jeremiah was able to march on in there and, and just interrupt their conspiracy, <laughs> okay, and preach to them that uh, there will be no resisting the king of Babylon because Nebuchadnezzar is a tool in Jehovah's hands. The Lord is using Nebuchadnezzar and he is giving him every victory. And, uh, and there is a, now a new phase in human history that is about to be launched. And it is so significant that we realize this. As Bible students, we've got to realize in that vast panorama of, of biblical development, right? We are looking for new heavens and a new earth. But in the meantime, where are we and, and, and where have we been and, and what's, what's unfolding in the plan of God? And you've got to understand that from Abraham onward, it's been a Jewish stewardship. Israel has been the, the covenant nation, the Jewish people. They've had the scriptures. They've had the prophets. They've been responsible to, to preach to the Gentile nations relating to their God, the God of creation, see? And uh, in the course of that, more unfolding, more of the plan of God unfolds. It includes a king. It includes David and his descendants. It includes a throne. And, and they are promised that it is an eternal throne, and so now something so extraordinary is happening because God himself vacated the throne of David. 
God himself will destroy Jerusalem. God himself will destroy the temple. The glory departs from the holy place and the, and the throne is unseated. It is unseated to this day. It is still a vacated throne to this day. All right? And so these, uh, these details, this application is vital for us to understand what is yet future for Israel, the future guaranteed promises to the son of David seated on the throne of David, ruling over the Jewish people in their land. All right? And this is what they are looking forward to. They are looking forward to the thousand years and beyond. We are looking forward to the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so some of these distinctions come into play when you start to break down the difference between Israel and the church, for example. All right. So Jeremiah 27 gives us a context that will be very useful for us this morning, as well as additional prophetic messages. By the way, this goes back to Moses. This goes back to the Exodus. This goes back to, oh, a Gentile prophet by the name of Balaam. All right. When you're in Numbers 21, what are you dealing with? When you're in Numbers 24, what are you dealing with? Balak hires Balaam to curse Israel. And he's not able to do it because God has blessed Israel. And, and some of the funniest things you've ever re- read, including a talking donkey and other things, you know, and, and a king who is absolutely livid because he keeps paying top dollar to get the curse, and instead he keeps getting blessing after blessing after blessing, right? And I just crack up every time I read that. It just makes me laugh because Balaam was tragically, he was the for-profit prophet, remember? He was the one that was doing everything he could for money, including defying the will of God. And how heartbreaking is that? And yet, oh, did I mention this Balak character I'm talking about? Was the king of Moab, okay? And so we have connections there and we have foreshadowing there and messages there. In fact, a prophecy is uttered with respect to a star and a scepter and and the coming of the Lord God. A very Christological prophecy is uttered from a Gentile prophet like Balaam. All right. So uh, that's Numbers 21, verses 28 and following. Also Numbers 24, 17, information there. Two full chapters in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 15 and Isaiah chapter 16, all right? As well as a couple of verses there in Isaiah 25, plus a stretch of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 25, a couple of verses in Amos chapter 2, and significantly in Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 2 verses 8 through 11. You say, well, who pays attention to Zephaniah? He was just a minor prophet. Okay, well, details. Okay, pay attention. And they are significantly important. And I'll give you some of those. uh, uh, I'm not going to turn there now, but some of the principles that come from those verses are going to show up here uh, shortly in some of these additional slides. The um, other secular records, as it comes down to it, we can turn to Josephus and some of the information that's available there. Now, it's not Bible, but it is reliable history that's been corroborated through other sources and, and so forth. I think Josephus in his Antiquities, Book 10, how that is, chapter 9, line 7, there's different ways to versify Josephus, and uh, I go back and forth in selecting which one I like. Um, I actually don't like any of them, but this works. And so this is the secular history recording the fulfillment of our chapter today. And um, the details on this, when they were there, God signified to the prophet that the king of Babylon was about 
making an expedition against the Egyptians and commanded him to foretell to the people that Egypt should be taken and the king of Babylon should slay some of them and should take others captive and bring them to Babylon. And we've seen this already. Jeremiah spoke to this, to Nebuchadnezzar's victory over the Egyptians. Which things came to pass accordingly for on the fifth year after the destruction of Jerusalem, which was the 23rd of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, he made an expedition against Celestria And when he had possessed himself of it, he made war against the Ammonites and the Moabites. So this is our context today. Today we're all about the Moabites in Jeremiah 48. Next week we'll come back in chapter 49 and we'll get the Ammonites and the Edomites and some other ites. Uh, We got four uh, different messages next week in chapter 49. And when he had brought all these nations under subjection, he fell upon Egypt in order to overthrow it, and he slew the king that then reigned and set up another, and he took those Jews that were their captives and led them away to Babylon. And such was the end of the nation of the Hebrews, as it hath been delivered down to us, it having twice gone beyond Euphrates. And this gets into some other things there, but this I think is the Winston, Whiston translation of Josephus, which still has a lot, King Jamesy has a lot of the haths in the, the language there. All right. Uh, some maps, if you like looking at pictures. Um, and that's smaller than I thought it was going to be. But uh, Moab is southeast of Judah. This is an interesting map. Uh, after the fall of the northern kingdom, Okay, The Assyrians come in and they sweep away 10 tribes of the northern kingdom and all that's left really is a small little area around Jerusalem. You have this little region here. This is, this is independent Judah right here. Okay, And this is not independent Judah. Okay, This is the Assyrian province of Judah as the Assyrians conquered it and gave it the same name and called it Judah and, and put a puppet there. Uh, and so all of these are, there's Megiddo, Samaria, Dor, Gilead, Carnaim, all of these are uh, Assyrian provinces under Assyrian dominion until the Babylonians come in and uh, make it Babylonian. And so on the east side of the Dead Sea then, Ammon, Moab, Edom, from north to south, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Edomites, the three nations that are biologically the closest to the Jewish people, Moab and Ammon being descendants of Lot and Edom being the twin brother of, of Jacob, uh, the twin brother of, of, uh, of Israel, right? Esau, you have Jacob and Esau, Esau becomes Edom. So the Edomites are the twin brother of Jacob, the twin brother of Israel. The Edomites are just as much sons of Abraham and Isaac as the Jews are. But remember, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, see? And so even though they have the same father and grandfather, the Edomites are not the covenant nation. They are not the recipients of the Abrahamic covenant. And those things uh, become important as well. So anyway, today we're dealing with Moab right right in there. And if you want to do more additional history on this, feel free. And you'll notice this line here was very flexible. <laughs> it went north, it went south, it disappeared sometimes. It was just a, a kind of a battleground between the Ammonites and the Moabites. And a lot of the time the Jews got in there and uh, uh, Reuben and Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh, they carved out a little, little territory over there and uh, it went back and forth. Anyway, so you can uh, have some fun with that. Simply speaking, Moab is facing destruction. And uh, the bottom line of the first 10 verses is God is going to destroy them and there's nothing they can do about it. There is not even a hint of a repent or else kind of message in any of this. It is just simply the consequences of what they have coming. 
And they have it coming because for all this period of time they have been trusting in their own achievements and their own treasures. And if you think about it, what a pattern for all of us today. (laughs) What a pattern for humanity after Adam's sin. How common is it for us to trust in our own achievements, to think that what we can earn and deserve counts for something, or to trust in our own treasures, that uh, if we're smart enough and rich enough, we can solve our own problems, we can insure ourselves against everything, uh, we, can, uh, we can make ourselves untouchable through the, to the circumstances and details of life because we have all our bases covered, our portfolio is divested, and we are, we're, we're insured for everything. And uh, there is nothing that can possibly harm us. See, and we get so prideful over such things. Trusting in our own achievements or trusting in our own treasures. And, of course, the Scripture commands us, don't do that. (laughs) In fact, cursed is the man who trusts a man, and cursed are you if you're trusting in yourself and your ability and your achievements. I think it's the what we see here as a rebuke in 48.7, I think is the antithesis of what God says in, in Psalm 40. In Psalm 40, verses 4 and 5. And so in uh, contradistinction and in opposition to what's here, again, Jeremiah 48, 7, because of your trust in your own achievements and treasures. If if you are trusting, if your faith is grounded in the wrong object, uh, that's going to have some consequences, okay? Your faith or your trust is grounded in the wrong object. What does Psalm 40 say? Are you familiar with this? Psalm 40? One of the better known psalms because it's uh, quoted so much in the New Testament. Psalm 40. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust. <laughs> I mean, why trust in yourself? Why trust in your achievements and your riches and whatever? What is that? All of our righteousness is filthy rags anyway, so don't trust in any of that. But how blessed, asheray, happy is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. And I see the, uh, the emphasis there by, whereby uh, we, start, uh, we start having confidence in our achievements. Then it fosters, what does it foster? This mutual admiration society. Now we're going to be comparing ourselves with ourselves and we're going to start uh, developing a, a relative standard of, of how good we think we have it. Uh, Verse 5, many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done. Why would you want to trust in your own achievements when he's the one that's achieved everything? He's the one that's accomplished it all. Jesus said it is finished when he completed that work on the cross. Are you kidding? We're going to trust in something other than the Lord? Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. Right? And, uh, you know, we sing the mighty power of God and why have we stopped? You know, the, the song only has four verses, but couldn't it have a hundred verses or a thousand verses or uh, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing? Well, we need more tongues than that. Because it's infinite, it's eternal, the glories of our God and what we can trust in, um, and so forth. And this is the introduction then to uh, sacrifice, a meal offering you have not desired, my, uh, my ears you have opened, or a body thou hast prepared for me. Um, I, behold, I come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O oh my God. So here is our Savior, here is Jesus Christ coming in first advent, 
to accomplish our redemption. And Psalm 40 is the background for that. You understand, this is what we're all called to do. We're trusting in the Lord. We're not trusting in our own achievements or our own wealth. Chemosh is banned as the destroyer diligently avoids Yahweh's curse. And uh, I'm not going to go into the angelic conflict on this, but it's here. It's in this passage. If you have a, a background in this kind of teaching, then you'll understand it. You'll see it for what it is. It won't jump out at you as being very weird. But we're talking about false gods, which are really what? Fallen angels posing as gods, right? And uh, Hamash isn't real except for he is a fallen angel posing as a god. And uh, there is war between them. Satan's is a house divided. And we learn in Daniel 10, we learn that the prince of Greece is coming to attack the prince of Persia. And we've got, we've got uh, fallen angels that have dominion over these Gentile nations. And so there is angelic work at play. The destroyer there, the Shaddad in the Hebrew, we've got the, uh, there's a, an angelic uh, agency there of God's wrath called the destroyer not only here, but throughout the Old Testament. We're familiar with Shaddad. Even the vocabulary is connected to El Shaddai, right? God Almighty. And uh, one of his own titles. But here's the destroyer that is coming. And so uh, this uh, cursed be the one who does the Lord's work negligently is that's applicable to all of us. And we can have a generic application. Anyone can. But the specific application is targeted towards the destroyer. The destroyer has an assignment and will be into him if he misses a single Moabite city in the process of the destruction that he has uh, been assigned to bring. All right, so more on that if uh, you want to pursue those things. I do recommend our Daniel study where in chapter 10 particularly you can focus in on those angels and uh, the role of angels, the role of the angelic conflict playing out in the invisible world while human battles are playing out in the, uh, in the visible world. That becomes a, an important study also. All right, uh, verses 11 through 25 then. Moab has been at ease since his youth. He has also been undisturbed like wine on its dregs. See, that's, they view it as a great thing. And God says, no, it's a problem. The wine that just sits there. And he has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into exile. Therefore, he retains his flavor and his aroma has not changed. It's kind of an interesting metaphor. It's employed here to, to speak to the, the winemaking process whereby after a time, after I think it's 40 days, after some period of time then, they would pour it out into a new container so as to not allow those dregs to pollute the wine or to, to affect its taste and, uh, and that. And if you're, not, if you're not getting poured out occasionally, then you don't stay fresh. And maybe that's true in, in our life as well. If we're not being poured out every so often, then are we walking by faith? Are we trusting in the Lord? As, uh, as those things go. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send to him those who tip vessels and they will tip them over. Okay? They never, there's, there's no shortage of people willing to tip a glass, right? And so um, when, when God looks around to find a volunteer to come and tip these vessels over, it's real easy to find a crowd that would be gladly, gladly tip, uh, tip your, uh, your wine jugs over and, uh, and so forth. So when God calls upon the fallen angels as agents of destruction, does he ever have a hard time finding those kind of volunteers? Not at all. 
You can read 2 Kings 22 and, and see an example there where he, he calls for volunteers and says, who's going to go up and attack the king at Ramoth Gilead? And uh, there's a long line of people saying, ooh, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. Okay? Fallen angels. Okay? That are volunteering to be the agents of God's wrath. Well, there's a lot more here too. Um, as we go down through verse 25, um, Verse 13 says, Moab will be ashamed of Chemosh and the house of Israel as the house of Israel was ashamed of Bethel, their confidence. And it's, you know, it's one thing to be a Gentile nation and get destroyed, but to have your eyes open where you see for yourself the insanity of your idolatry, that's actually kind of unique. You know, among all the Gentile nations to see that Chemosh was empty, that Chemosh was, was nothing, and to actually see the hand of Yahweh at work in their nation's destruction, they will see that. And they will have shame. What does it take to produce shame? You have to have a recognition of reality in order to produce shame. And, the, and there's a concept there that would, I'd love to expand at some point. We just don't have time today. Uh, verse 14, How can you say we are mighty warriors and men valiant for battle? You can't. Moab has been destroyed. Men have gone up to his cities. His choicest young men have also gone down to the slaughter, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. So we have to also examine these chapters and ask ourselves, how much of this is 6th century B.C. Nebuchadnezzar? And how much of this is eschatology? How much of this actually looks forward to the coming end times, to the coming destruction of the nations around Jerusalem? And do we in fact have a dual fulfillment because do we in fact have prophetic shifts from paragraph to paragraph whereby in part of the chapter we're contemporaneous with Jeremiah and for part of the chapter we are eschatological. And here we see the king and um, whose name is Yahweh Tsevayoth, the Lord of hosts. All right, so the disaster of Moab will soon come. His calamity has swiftly hastened. You notice how terms like soon and swiftly are so relative and we as humans are so impatient and God talks about a lot of things are coming quickly which have been 2,000 years in the making now, all right? And we're, we're cool with that because we start to think as God thinks on His calendar, on His timetable. Mourn for Him, all you who live around Him, even all of you who know His, shame, his name. Say how the mighty scepter has been broken, a staff of splendor. Well, what's this scepter about? And you go, wow, there's a ton of homework in front of me. Okay? I think this has something to do with what Balaam was talking about. There's something going on here. Come down now from your glory and sit on the parched ground. O daughter dwelling in Dibon. Notice how many proper names are in this chapter. There's a lot. It jumps out at you actually in, uh, in different ways. For the destroyer of Moab has come up against you, has ruined your stronghold. Stand by the road and keep watch. Verse 19, O inhabitants of Aurora, ask him who flees and her who escapes and say, what has happened? Man, why is everybody running? <laughs> okay. Learn something because they know. They know not only what but why. Moab has been put to shame for it has been shattered. Wail and cry out, uh, declare by the Arnon. That's the river between Ammon and Moab. Uh, that Moab has been destroyed. All right, then verses 21 through 25 still in this section. 
It's all about Moab's complacency. So I'll talk about that here in a moment. Um, I've been practicing all these names, so I want to get them out there. <laughs> Not really. All right. Um, so judgment has also come upon the plain, the famous plains of Moab, where, where so many battles took place and other tragic events. The women played the har- or the, the Jewish men played the har- harlot with the daughters of Moab here on the plains of Moab, and my hero Phineas came along and stopped that plague. Um, anyway, and then upon Holon, Jazia, Mephath, Demon, Nebo, Beth, all these places, Kiriathiam, Beth Gamul, Beth Meon. Um, it's a different Basra, by the way, in verse 24. That's a Moabite Basra, not the Edomite Basra you might be familiar with in other prophecies. Um, verse 25, the horn of Moab has been cut off and his arm broken, declares the Lord. All right, so it's a broken horn and a broken arm. Anyway, in these early verses, what was spoken to there is complacency, being at ease, being like wine that's just sitting there, that's so complacent, that's so at ease, it doesn't even get the normal outpouring that it should have. And uh, some of this complacency, I think, is, uh, is interesting. Why are they complacent? And why, uh, what stirs them up to their own rebellion? Well, the Old Testament tells us this, and I find it interesting. Now go back, if you will, and, uh, to uh, 2 Samuel. How much of this do I want to get into? Well, a fair amount. I think this is significant. If you look in 2 Samuel chapter 8, you're going to find David beat these people. And he beat them into submission. And it was brutal. David, David defeated the Moabites. And a part of his overall conquest on the eastern side of the Dead Sea here, 2 Samuel 8, and this is before he goes carnal, before he gets, David himself gets complacent in, uh, in his wars here. So we're backing up to 2 Samuel. Are you with me still? 2 Samuel chapter 8, and we're backing up about 400 years, okay, in time. We're going back to, you know, 1000 BC or even 1100 BC. Okay, so even 500 years in time. And uh, we see the, defeat, uh, the, the victories that David has here. Um, 2 Samuel 8, 1, uh, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. Defeated and subdued. That's significant. And David took control of the chief city from the hand of the Philistines. He defeated Moab and measured them with the line, making them lie down on the ground. And he measured two lines to put to death and one line to keep alive. Okay? Brutal. Doesn't exactly jibe with our modern sensitivities in some ways, all right? And the Moabites became servants to David, bringing tribute. Now, how long does that last? And how long does that last? And at what point then is complacency give way to conspiracy, give way to rebellion? And some of these things become important. All right. From there, he went up against uh, Ammonites and Edomites and some other Arameans. And there was a lot of other warfare. And, and, and David was great up to a point, And then finally, he kind of left it with his generals and decided that he was going to leave the final overthrow of the Ammonites to some of his generals. And, and, uh, and he was going to hang out back in Jerusalem and get in trouble with, uh, with Bathsheba. So that's, that's what we're talking about here in this portion of, uh, of 2 Kings. Uh, verse 12 of the same chapter, uh, from Aram and Moab and the sons of Ammon and the Philistines and, Am- and Amalek, from the spoil of Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And um, all the silver and all the gold, all the plunder, and David dedicated it all to the Lord. And um, 
Verse 13 says, when David made a name for himself, when he returned from killing 18,000 Arameans in the Valley of Salt, he put garrisons in Edom. Okay, garrisons. That's uh, an outpost with your troops that keep an eye on things. And uh, the natives there don't like it if you are an occupying power. All right. Now, Moab is going to feign obedience until such time as they no longer have to. And this becomes significant as well. So after David's conquest, Moab feigned obedience. We saw that they submitted. We saw that they paid tribute. Uh, but did they like it? I don't think so. In fact, Scripture says they didn't. Second Samuel twenty two forty five, and And this is not only for today, but this is for future studies. This is for millennial studies and fullness of time studies. I think it's important that we recognize the failure that the millennium is. Because the millennium is full of feigned obedience. And the, the word here for obey is a word for lie. And if you're lying about it, are you really obeying? No, you're just faking it. Second Samuel twenty two forty five, where it says, um, well, there's a longer context on this too, but it's, it's David celebrating his victories here. And he says... Um, Verse 43, I pulverized them as the dust of the earth. I crushed and stamped them in the, as mire in the streets. You have also delivered me from the contentions of my people. You have kept me as head of the nations. A people whom I have not known serve me. Foreigners pretend obedience to me. There it is. It's a feigned obedience. As soon as they hear, they obey me. Foreigners lose heart and come out trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God and rock of my salvation. And you see, a lot of this, of course, is historical as it applies to David, but it's eschatological as it applies to Jesus. We know in the tribulation they're hiding under the mountains and calling upon the the rocks to fall upon them and the mountains to fall upon them, and then they come crawling out of their holes, and they will submit to the King of kings and Lord of lords, but they're not going to like it. See, And that resentment grows and grows and grows throughout the thousand-year reign. And so there's feigned obedience there. By the way, it's also spoken of, Moses predicted it in Deuteronomy 33, 29. And then there are three separate psalms that all address this. Feigned obedience. Psalm 18, 44. Psalm 66, 3. Psalm 81, 15. And in these psalms we see historical David. We see eschatological Jesus. We see the foreshadowing of what is tribulational coming up. In, uh, to set the stage for the millennial kingdom. All right? And in, I think some parts too, it's useful for us to keep in mind, what is the millennium anyway? It is the, the, the remainder of the day of the Lord. Tribulation and millennium both are day of the Lord. It's His conquest. He rules without rod of iron. He, it's, a, it's a military occupation. That's why He needs the temporary rulers that He, that he calls for when He resurrects the tribulational martyrs. He uses them as a part of the administration for his provisional government. It's an occupational government. The permanent government doesn't come until the the fullness of time on the new earth. In any event. You remember when uh, Saul died and David became king of just one tribe all by itself? Just Judah for seven years? And then he gets the other 11 tribes. He gets to become king of all Israel for 33 years. So it's 40 altogether. Well, why that limited little reign to start with in just Judah by itself? before he gets the whole nation of Israel. Well, foreshadowing of what we have with Christ, who in the millennium he gets the nation of Israel with a bunch of Gentile 
uh, regrets <laughs> and uh, resentments. People that uh, have to come and bend the knee every year and some choose not to. So they get their rain turned off. Remember that? Zechariah 14. If they don't appear at the Feast of Trumpets, they get their rain turned off for the following year. But then, new heavens and new earth. He gets the ends of the earth as his possession. And uh, the greater rule, the rule of of grace and and, uh, blessing that comes on the new earth. All right, so when you read about the feigned obedience there, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about in Psalm 18 and Psalm 66 and Psalm 81. There's quite a bit there. Um, but after Ahab's death, Moab quit feigning. It took a couple hundred years. And uh, the, the kingdom of Israel was split north and south. There was the northern ten tribes that came to have dominion over the Moabite people. Ahab, remember Ahab and Jezebel in the north? Pretty wicked. Um, but after Ahab's death, Moab didn't have to fake it anymore. They stopped paying their tribute. They were able to break free. They fought their own war for independence. And uh, this is the content of Second Kings chapter 3, by the way. You read the whole thing. I won't turn there this morning, but just read it. And you'll see that it's a, it's a, it's a king, Misha, M-E-S-H-A. Misha is the king of Moab. And the scripture describes how after the, the death of Ahab, the whole house of Omri is gone, and now... Uh, uh, the Moabites are able to break free. Not only is it recorded in Scripture, archaeology has discovered the uh, Moabite Declaration of Independence, <laughs> okay? which was not written by Thomas Jefferson, but it was written by Misha, called the Misha Steel. Sometimes it's called the Moabite Stone. Got a spiffy picture of it there. If you read Moabite, okay, um, then you can read that. Or if you don't read Moabite... Um, I can find you a translation, I think. Here we go. The black basalt stella, or a memorial tablet, three feet, ten inches high, two feet wide, ten and a half inches thick, with a flat base but rounded top, set up by Misha, the king of Moab, toward the end of his reign, about 830 B.C., to celebrate his liberation of Moab from the Israelite yoke and his subsequent rebuilding of many cities in uh, his land. Misha states that the Omri king of Israel, that would be Ahab, has reduced Moab to a state of vassalage during the reign of Misha's father, and that he, Misha, successfully revolted against Israel and liberated Moab. It is the longest historical inscription of Old Testament Palestine discovered thus far, tells uh, the Moabite side of the events recorded in 2 Kings 3. And then a translation of its 34 lines of text is also available. This is Pritchard. Uh, Albright made the translation, but Pritchard combined it in this ancient Near Eastern textbook, um, the Moabite Stone. Discovered intact in 1868, subsequently broken by the Arabs, figures, and in 1873 taken to the Louvre. And uh, anyway, the different authors that have studied it and translated it and details on the translation, fixed to 849, or they got different estimates on the date. And uh, there it is, I am Misha, son of Chemosh. And this is his side of the story. It's not worth reading, I'll just tell you. It's, it's a bunch of Gentiles bragging about whatever. Okay, you can get that on the evening news. <laughs> but it is remarkable though, 
for a couple of things, because yes, it corroborates 2 Kings 3 from the Gentile side of things, but also it does testify to Yahweh as the God of Israel. <laughs> you know, and that it does so at a pretty early date, earlier than uh, a lot of the liberals want to, you know, tell you that how it got added to the Bible and blah, blah, blah. So, kind of some fun with that. All right. Feigned obedience. Keep that in mind, because what we see here with the Moabites and their ultimate destruction, but yet they have a promised uh, remnant at the end of the chapter. It boggles the mind. We, uh, we're, we're kind of cheering because we see a wicked nation getting it, and, but then at the end they've got a remnant. We go, wow, God's gracious to other people too, including Moabites, Ammonites, and Edomites. All right, man, where does the time go? Verses 26 through 30. In some ways it's the shortest of all these segments, but in other ways it takes the most work. Um, 26 through 30. I call it the Ode to Vomit. It is, uh, it's a song of the drunkard. It's a song, uh, it, you know, there was an early version by Isaiah in verse, chapters 15 and 16. Zephaniah had a version of this in Zephaniah chapter 2. Uh, but Jeremiah is going to expand both the Isaiah and Zephaniah uh, text into his own oracle, his own Moabite oracle, and this uh, song about vomit. And it starts with all these synonyms for pride. And you get all these, you know, there's six of them here in verse 29. We have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his, that's another term, uh, of his haughtiness, his pride, his arrogance, his self-exaltation. Six synonyms for pride emphatically driving the point home. And uh, so much here that addresses this. But uh, this section here in verses 26 through 30 is kind of interesting. Make him drunk for he has become arrogant toward the Lord. So Moab will wallow in his vomit, or he will slap it. Um, and he also will become a laughing stock. You know, if you're going to be such a drunk laughing stock, you might as well get drunk. And that's what the prophet is saying here. Go ahead and make him get drunk. Moab will wallow in his vomit. Now, was it not Israel a laughing stock to you? Or was he caught among thieves? For each time you speak about him, you shake your head in scorn. And the, the pride of Moab kept looking at, at Israel saying, ha, and mocking their destruction, mocking their judgment, mocking their discipline. Let me tell you something. If you watch a brother in Christ going through divine discipline, don't you dare mock that discipline. If you see a sister in Christ going through some judgment, or going through some discipline, don't dare mock pray, intercede, be humbled. Look to yourself too, lest you too be tempted. You who are spiritual, restore such a one, right? Because that mocking of somebody else's downfall, even if it is earned and deserved, that's fine. But leave judgment in the hands of God. Judgment is His. He will repay. We're not, we're not equipped for that. And the mocking derision, it comes back to us. It's, Arnold Fruchtenbaum speaks of this as like for like in kind. Where that, to the, you know, Jesus said that. As if you judge to that extent, uh, it it's, comes down on you, right? All right. Anyway, pride is the, is the main issue here. We understand the doctrine of pride. I would take some time here to show you the aspects on pride. Pride is Satan's besetting sin from the Leviathan text of Job 41. He is king over all that walk in pride. He looks over all. And he's the king of them all. 
Job 41, verses 33 and 34. Isaiah 14, 13, the five-eye wells of Satan, how you have fallen from heaven. And the rebuke of Hillel ben Shachar in that passage. Ezekiel 28, 17, he was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. The greatest of all created beings. The workmanship of his settings and his sockets. He had gold, he had gems, he had jewels. He was the most beautiful dragon you ever seen in your life. Gem encrusted and gold and silver and everything. Until iniquity was found within him. He was internally filled with violence and he sinned. And it all came down to pride. And as it consumed him, it exploded in that fire. And uh, what was left behind was that darkened, blackened hulk of a Leviathan. Uh, a dragon that was certainly ferocious and fierce, but by no means beautiful in, uh, in any description. So yeah, when you read Job 41 and read Ezekiel 28, put them side by side. And uh, don't forget that that cherub being described in Job uh, or in Ezekiel is indeed the dragon, is indeed the Leviathan. First Timothy 3.6 also speaks of pride being Satan's besetting sin. Uh, it's why you don't lay hands on a man too hastily. A young pastor, before he's ready, uh, gets uh, into the, the ministry and he's not equipped for it, he's not ready for it, he's not humble, and that pride is going to eat him up. That condemnation of the devil destroys the, uh, the pastor in his young ministry. So pride is Satan's besetting sin. And so it's interesting. There's a futile fury <laughs> in verse 30. A futile fury which foreshadows Satan's demise. You know, he says, we have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his haughtiness, his pride, his arrogance, his self-exaltation. I know his fury, declares the Lord, but it is futile. Well, what do you accomplish with your anger anyway? Okay. I'm preaching to myself this morning. How about that? Um, His fury is futile. His idle boasts have accomplished nothing Really? What have you achieved? You know that those five eye wills, he's 0 for 5. He's not going to accomplish any of them. And we have a foreshadowing here. And, and the more it becomes clear that he's lost, the more angry he becomes. Read Revelation chapter 12, and when Satan is thrown down to the earth, he goes forth with great wrath, knowing that he has just a short time remaining. And he is completely dedicated to exterminating every Jewish person from the planet because he knows if he can't thwart the plan of God in that remaining few days, then he's lost. The Lord of hosts is coming to destroy him. So you can see a futile fury and uh, the uh, foreshadowing of its uh, reality there in Satan. Finally then, The Lord laments Moab's destruction. And these verses are slightly um, confusing, only to the point that we've read 30 verses now, and we get it. Moab's done. You're going to blast him. Okay. But now he's crying about it in verse 31. Therefore, I will wail for Moab. Even for all Moab, I will cry out. I will moan for the men of Kirharaz. And this is not the weeping prophet weeping. This is, this is Yahweh. More than the weeping for Jezer, I will weep for you, O vine of Sibmah. Your tendrils stretched across the sea. They reach to the sea of Jezer. Upon your summer fruits and your grape harvest, the destroyer has fallen. So why is he sad? It came about. He brought it about that he's not happy about it. Keep in mind, God derives no pleasure from the death of the wicked, rather that the wicked should turn from their ways and repent. 
You think about the alternative, what might have been. What might the positive volition have been? There were believing Moabites throughout their history. Ruth was a Moabitess. In, in, the grandmother of, of David, okay? In the lineage of Christ. There are believing Moabites here and there. And uh, anyway, the one who's weeping is the one that says, I am making an end of them in verse 35. So it is him. My heart wails for Moab like flutes. My heart also wails like flutes for the men of Kirharis. Therefore they have lost the abundance it produced in verse 36. Anyway, the Lord laments Moab's destruction even as he decrees the year of their punishment. Here's some expressions for you. I know, we're getting hungry. Work with me here. We're getting there. Our genius genius architect designed the pulpit to be as far away from the kitchen as possible. So whatever the back row starts smelling, if there's something being heated, something being warmed, I don't know about it, okay? I just see the wiggling on the back row. <clears throat> when you look at verses 40 and following here, I think it's, it's interesting about the, the, uh, the destruction, terror and pit and snare coming upon you. Can you try to solve something through human effort? You know, what are you going to accomplish? Verse 41 says, The hearts of the mighty men of Moab in that day will be like the heart of a woman in labor. Now, I've never been in labor. I've seen it. I don't want to experience it. But the mighty men are going to be like that. The soldiers are going to be like that. The mighty men are going to be like that. And I tell you, when you're in that kind of labor, that kind of pain, that kind of travail... Um, there's not a lot of other activity you're going to be doing simultaneous with that. You're basically totally focused on getting through it and being done with it. And, uh, well, that's what these mighty men are going to be like. And uh, because they've been arrogant towards Yahweh. Terror, pit, and snare. I like that in verse 43. Terror, pit, and snare are coming upon you, O inhabitant of Moab declares the Lord, the one who flees from the terror will fall into the pit, and the one who climbs up out of the pit will be caught in the snare. So whatever you try to do, when you try to solve your problems through human effort, what are you going to end up with? From the one to the other to the other? We talk about out of the frying pan and into the fire, and what's worse than that? I mean, it just keeps going and going and going, and whatever you think you're out of, go ahead and try to solve your problems. Human attempts to run from problems only land them in the next problem from uh, terror to pit to snare. Similar language is employed in Isaiah 24, Amos chapter 5. I find that interesting. All right. And yet, and yet, and yet, and yet. Look at how the chapter ends. Let me see, what else? There's, uh, in verse uh, 44, the year of their punishment declares the Lord. All right, now you've been with me now. We've been in this for almost an hour. We've read most of these verses. This, this appears to be directed towards Moab, wouldn't you say? Um, it's called the year of their punishment, wouldn't you say? I want to know, where are all the Christian authors and all of their books trying to prove that the church has to go through the year of Moab's punishment? Because there seems to be a whole branch of Christendom that wants to prove 
The church has to go through the time of Jacob's trouble. See what I did there? The time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation of Israel. Hello? Why would the church go through any of that? Why would the church go through this? It has nothing to do with the body of Christ or the church age or anything that you and I would, we, you know, we, we learn from this doctrine. It's God-breathing and profitable, but it's not applicable to us, except in the secondary applications we make as it pertains to pride and human effort and all these other things we talk about. But the primary application here, this is Moab, not us. And I don't see a big effort to try to push the church through Moab's distress or what's called here the year of Moab. Moab's punishment, declares the Lord. Why would we push the church through the time of Jacob's trouble? Okay, that's Israel's judgment. Anyway, as fugitives survey the aftermath, Yahweh promises a future. And this just boggles the mind. Look at how the chapter ends in verses uh, 45 through 47 here. In the shadow of Heshbon, the fugitives stand without strength. You know, you're just exhausted. You're just, you're standing there. (laughs) And everywhere you look around, it's just devastation, okay? A fire has gone forth from Heshbon, a flame from the midst of Sihon, devoured the foreheads of Moab, the scalps of the riotous revelers. That's a fun verse. Woe to you, Moab, the people of Hamash have perished. Your sons have been taken away captive, your daughters into captivity. Yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord. Thus far, the judgment of Moab. There are certain lands that have a millennial destiny in addition to Israel. Moab, Ammon, and Edom. And this is because, whoops, this is because of Daniel eleven forty one. You read in Daniel 11 and you see that there, are, there is territory that is sheltered, territory that is preserved, territory that Yahweh does not allow Antichrist to, to storm into. And it includes these same territories we're looking at here, Moab, Ammon, and Edom. All right, They become a refuge to the Jewish people in the coming tribulation. So I think it makes more sense when we understand Daniel 11.41, but I'm just out of time and can't take you there. All right. Father, we thank you for this chapter. We thank you for this day. I trust we will learn principles for our application that this will fit together with other studies in, uh, in so many ways, Father. There is so much that comes to this and perhaps we'll even have a greater uh, appreciation for the utterances of Balaam for the content of Numbers. And Father, there is just so much as it pertains to the uh, children of Lot. Father, it's a sad, sad story. Lot escapes out of Sodom and Gomorrah and he ends up fathering children through his two daughters and just horrible. But this is the birth of Ammon and Moab and this is uh, the genesis of these nations. And these nations, Father, blessed as they are in Lot, they have a millennial land grant. And, uh, and I pray that we'll understand these things and come to appreciate the, the glory of your plan in, in such a greater way. Father, we also thank you for this day and the joy that it is for us to assemble together uh, that we can have fellowship uh, partaking not only spiritual food but earthly food. I uh, look forward to the fellowship and the, the, uh, that's going to take place here with the saints. And I uh, just thank you that all of this is possible. None of this would be possible without our, uh, our blessed Redeemer, without our Savior, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because of His obedience, because of His finished work, 
Father, we have the delight we have to fellowship together in unity, in like-mindedness, in, uh, in grace and peace. And so I thank you for our blessed Redeemer, in whose holy name I do pray. Amen.